welcome to Talk with Teddy. Thanks for joining us, friends. As an avid writer, a registered nurse, a nutritionist, an educator, and chronic illness sufferer, it's been so fun to start this podcast. I really hope that it has brought you the connection and the inspiration that you need to carry on in your own creative ways and becoming your best selves. I just wanted to add a little bit of a disclaimer before we start this episode that one of the childhood trauma experiences that the person I'm interviewing has experienced is quite vulnerable and I'm not sure how much detail we will be going into but it's something to keep in mind that this may want to be an episode that you listen to without children in the room. Hope you're all doing fabulous. I am really excited about this episode on the Looking Outward mini-series that we're doing because this next guest has overcome so much and she has also accomplished so much. Um, as a child, Rayanne was sex trafficked, which is absolutely horrendous and horrible. And I don't know how much she's going to talk about that. But she's gone down a very long road to get to where she is now. And so much strength she must have. She was a horse trainer, she was a Mai Tai kickboxer, a world traveler, and she's currently a writer. She's querying literary agents as we speak. She's a student of neurogenic, neuroenergetic kinesiology, which is brain integration and applied physiology. Acupressure combined with mudras to help pull stress of the energetic system of the body, mind, and emotion. That sounds really interesting, and I know that she's also mentioned that neuroenergetic kinesiology is the strongest tool she knows of to be of service outside of her own voice and her story. So I want to ask her a little more about this neuroenergetic kinesiology or brain integration and applied physiology and how it's worked for her. I'm guessing it. she's also obviously had some sort of a personal benefit from it. So I know she's also about to drop a podcast in September called Focus Forward and an IGTV co-host. Uh, she's being, becoming an IGTV co-host for a new show dropping in September as well. And both of these um, shows, the podcast and the uh, IGTV show, they focus on providing people with tools they need to change their lives, starting right where they are, which is awesome. That's kind of 
what I'm all about. It's what this podcast is all about. It's kind of what my women's workshops uh, coming up at an unknown date are going to be all about. We have decided that we are going to put off the virtual podcast for a little bit. Um, Because of the pandemic, we did feel that the virtual was the way to go. But because in my area, we are starting to open up with different phases. So we will be, I believe, in phase two by August. And that was when we were going to um, offer our virtual, virtual women's workshop. But what we decided after some thought and pondering is that people may want to travel to see family or friends or go camping because campgrounds will be open. Um, So we thought that maybe August wasn't the best time because that is when families will want to travel. So stay tuned. We might bump it a little bit, um, but you should hear by August uh, what our plans are with that. So it's been put on the back burner for now and that's okay. So I think I've blabbered on at you long enough. I'm really excited to have a chat with Rayanne and have her tell us a little more about her story and why she is where she is today and how this neuroenergetic kinesiology has had an effect on her life. And I really know that this episode will be helpful for people um, using their own stories um, in order to look outward and help other people while using your own story. So let me get Rayanne on the line. Hi, Rayanne. How are you? I'm good, Teddy. How are you doing? Good. I'm so glad you could join the call today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's just awesome. uh, Awesome to have a place to chat. Absolutely. No, this is this is awesome. And I'm like reading all about you and the information you sent. You sound like such an interesting and awesome person. You've accomplished so much in your life. (laughs) Interesting. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you love horses. Like, that's so cool. Like horses kind of intimidate me a little bit. Oh, really? Oh, they must be like therapeutic to you or you you have a love for horses, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, I was raised. I mean, I could I could actually ride before I could walk. I mean, my mom, um, she rode with me right up until she was nine months pregnant. And wow. Yeah, so, I mean, I knew, I knew the feeling of a horse long before I ever, you know, was born. And then when um, she had me, I rode with her uh, in a backpack uh, on her back or in the front. And then by the time I was a year old, I think I had my own pony and I have pictures of two years old riding around on my own on a pony at two. So where were you raised? uh, I was raised all over the place, but I was born in White Rock, British Columbia. Okay. And then so kind of on an acreage situation or a farm? uh, Well, my mom and my dad, they weren't married. So my mom and my dad split when I was quite young. My dad was a drug dealer and um, my mom was terrified that the government was going to come take me away from her. And so we moved around a lot because she was a single parent. My dad was an incredible human being, but he had his own demons to fight. So he wasn't very um, stable uh, emotionally or uh, financially. So my mom, uh, we moved around 
to different little farm areas, whatever she could rent at the time. Uh, and we would keep our horses with us. So. Wow. I can't even imagine what that would be like just having to move around with horses. That's one thing to have to rent a place with dogs, let alone horses. I'm such a city girl though. <laughs> I I love how open you are about your childhood and kind of the the demons that your dad had to face. I know you've had to face them as well. Are you open to kind of telling us more about kind of your childhood and what sorts of things went on with you and kind of what has brought you to where you are today? Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Um, You're awesome. Well, thank you. So there's something that I didn't, I didn't know a lot about my past until I became an adult. And that's just, I think that's how we all find out, you know, our parents don't always share with us the things that took place when we were younger, the things that they went through out of this fear of somehow they don't want us to go through it, which epigenetically and generational trauma behavioral patterning actually dictates if we don't share our stories with our children that they end up reliving them anyways. And isn't that so interesting? Right. So I look yeah. at, you know, my father on my father's side, we were, we are Métis and my dad okay. suffered from generational trauma that started when he, uh, well, long before he was born with my great grandmother, Rachel, and she was born, uh, over on the great lakes, uh, over in Quebec, I believe it was. And she was taken off, uh, she was taken away from her family. She was stolen and put on, put into residential schooling. And from there, she had her language stripped and beaten from her. She was forced into Catholic, uh, to become a Catholic. A, a lot of really terrible things. All the things that you hear about residential school were Oh, it's awful. Were all Just awful. True. And so then when my grandmother met and married this man from Scotland, she hiked with him with the Hudson's Bay Company right across to Saskatchewan. And then into Alberta. Um, and my grandpa endured such racism. And he watched his father beat his mother on a regular basis. And he was an alcoholic. And so my grandpa was very traumatized as a result. And so when my grandpa was growing up, he always told all of his kids to marry white. Just trying to breed the color out of us because the racism was so terrifying back then. Wow, isn't it so sad? It is really sad. And my dad was very feminine. He had a very, and, and by feminine, that's, you know, what you would call it today. But he was just loving and he was soft and he was kind and he was gentle. Gentle. Smart, you know, he was, he was more likely, you know, to pick up a butterfly than, you know, put it into a cork board, which was the opposite, I think, of some of the other family members that, you know, the girls, everyone else he raised was quite tough. And so there was definitely a rift between my grandfather and my father. And, uh, and then my father just started, he had this sadness about him. And I didn't find this out until quite recently, but he had tried to commit suicide six times. And, oh, wow. yeah, and he was, like I said, he got into drugs and they got into that lifestyle of dealing and living that high life and everything was a party. Um, and so that's, you know, in, in the early years, my dad was, he was brilliant and he was engaging and he was exciting. And, you know, he was, he was just this magnificent charismatic creature that it was just a motto flame. You couldn't not love him, but loving right. was a lot like being in a Looney Tunes, you know, um, character, because you're always waiting for that acne anvil to drop on your head. Like there's, there's something right. else coming, you know, as much as you love this person, there's something else coming. So 
you know, with my dad, it was a lot of my mom would drop me off and he would take off or he wouldn't come home for three or four days, you know, and I'd be left with his, um, with his girlfriend or new wife. And, you know, this one time my dad, uh, it was just too much. He had had a fight with his wife and she had stormed out. My mom didn't know anything about this. She, she had dropped me off and my dad couldn't handle the pressure of it all. And so he went down a floor of this apartment building and knocked on the door and there was this brand new neighbor that didn't know him and he said can you watch my daughter for a minute I just have to go get milk and I don't have a car seat for and the guy said yeah sure not a problem my dad didn't come back for three days and oh my yeah like but but I mean that's not to say I'm not saying that because because oh he did this awful thing I'm saying that because that fight or flight instinct was so strong that he just had to he had to escape he couldn't handle you know, the traumas and the pressures of his own, um, demons, you know, and then, and then there was my mom and, you know, my mom's, she's another amazing creature. There's so much, um, generational trauma there as well. I look at the way that my mom was raised and it was funny. I didn't know what generational trauma was. I did not know what epigenetics was until I started looking at the patterns of my own family. And I saw that, my grandmother and her sister had been at war and fighting um, since they were little girls there. They had been turned against each other somehow. And then they had raised their children to behave the exact same way, to be in competition, you know, to make sure everything looked perfect and copacetic on the outside so that nobody asked questions. And, you know, the women they were raised, they, they weren't allowed to acknowledge their feelings because they were too busy providing. And, from an, Do you think that's a generational thing or like a woman thing? I think it's that, that just I can relate to that too. Yeah, Absolutely. I 100% believe that it's both. I think that it is been going on for about 7,000 years. You know, and, and it's almost a learned behavior because it's, it's just been behavior. passed down. Yeah. And, and I watched it in our family. I watched the way that, you know, my mother's sisters raised their kids and how those kids raised their kids. And it's, and it's all there, you know, like my my aunt she had children very young because she was forced to raise her brothers and sisters which was my mom and her little sisters and she didn't want to have that responsibility so she instead got married and had kids there at a very young age and then as a result um, those kids raised themselves but then they had children at an incredibly young age and so I've watched this pattern in each of my family members take root And it was the same with, you know, with my mom, she got out of the family very early. She had horses early on. And um, I watched the way that my mom dealt with me versus the way that my mom dealt with my half sister. And I can see that my mom's relationship with her mom was very reflective of my relationship with her and that my mom's relationship with her younger sisters was very evident in the fact that me and my sister's we don't see eye to eye and we don't talk and there's a definite difference in the way that our parents interact. And so that's that behavioral stuff that I thought was really fascinating. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You and me both. I love, I love that you recognize all of these patterns and things that have happened because I'm very much the same way. And it's just so fascinating. Isn't it fa- like it just, I find it enthralling to be honest. Yes. Yeah. And then I pick myself apart because I'm going, okay, I this. like this this cycle has to end and so that was one of the things that I did differently is recognizing that and then really I've worked so hard to build a relationship with my mom and 
and it's it's not been easy I mean because you gotta because of my childhood there were so many things that happened in my childhood that were traumatic and the you know the I didn't have the tools to process that back then so I did the best I could and I think that's what helps me to create or to continue to build something with my mom which is going well she didn't have the tools and I remember I was I was working and living in Alberta and this was right after um, my love had committed suicide and I was really struggling to oh I'm so sorry oh thank you um yeah I was really struggling to keep my business afloat to not you know uh to not just crumble and I I remember I'm driving down this hill into a coulee and I realized I was like oh my goodness I don't have any self-value everything I do is is a I'm trying to prove to people that I'm worth loving and I'm constantly performing and I'm constantly seeking for that validation from others yeah Mm -hmm. and exactly and I was like wait a minute why don't I have any self-value and then I was like well of course because my mother didn't teach me that I had any value because we weren't raised that way and then I thought then for like a split second honestly I was infuriated I was like how could she not teach me this and then I come up out of the cooling it dawned on me and I was like wait a minute my mom doesn't know how amazing she is. My mom lacks self-value and she couldn't teach what she didn't know. You know what I mean? Yes. And so I was like, okay, I have some, I have some big, some big lessons that I have to learn right now. And, you know, like you said, my mom was amazing. Like she, my mom was a provider. She didn't have yes. the tools to have the conversations because she hadn't been taught them. And she had had to suppress her own traumas for so long that she, Yes, she actually just didn't know how to let go. And I, and I think that, I think that that's the fear of a lot of us is when we are buried under our own grief, that we're worried if we start to feel it, that it will never end, you know? Yes. Well, and I feel like that's almost a generational thing as well. Like back then, like your mom, my mom, that generation, we, they, they didn't talk about the hard things. They didn't grapple with the hard things and dig down deep and really get that self-reflection. They, they weren't taught to be vulnerable and open about the, the trauma. Do you know, they were, they were raised to just pretend everything was hunky dory and fine and kind of bury bother. it. They were raised not to bother yes. people. They were raised to soldier through it. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And maybe we've recognized that and we're so lucky to be living in the day and age where vulnerability is seen as power now mm-hmm. and we can talk about the hard things. Like it's it's going to be okay because that's the only way we can move past it. Well, I 100% agree with you. But I also think that, again, I think that this goes back about, you know, what is it, I think about seven or 10,000 years ago. If you go back to like Mesopotamia times and Crete and the Greeks, when they took the, the goddess figure, Inanna, Um, or some people uh, call it Ishtar, and her son was Dionysus. And what they did is they actually turned Dionysus, her son, into the the Greek god Zeus. And they said that Zeus had no mother. And then what they did is they turned Ishtar, or Inanna, into his wife Hera. And then they fractured the great mother, which was, you know, the great goddess that everybody at that time believed and worshipped they fractured that into all those demi goddesses and so we were no longer we were no longer allowed to express the the entirety of our being we were we became and started to play these roles you know like Hera was the well she was the scorned lover and the irate wife and then you had 
um, you know, the other goddesses, there was the virgin and then there was, you know, the daughter and there was so many different uh, demigoddesses that came up. I don't know all their names. And I feel like, you know, way more than I do. It's just (laughs) fascinating. Seriously. It's awesome. I feel like, I feel like that's when we were fractured, our beings were fractured. And then we were only allowed to express these, you know, these certain aspects of ourselves. And we weren't allowed to be all the things that made us whole and, 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 you know, as a part of a, we weren't allowed to grieve in certain ways and we had to hide certain uh, parts of ourselves. Um, Anyways, that's, that's just, you know, some, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Sorry. I can go off on, I can go off on all kinds of tangents. So I'm the type of person you kind of got to rein me in a little bit. I love that though. And I'm, I'm such a, like, I don't know if I'm ADHD or not, but I always joke that I am because I just think it's also fascinating. (laughs) Learning is fascinating and the way our minds work Mm -hmm. and how it affects our behaviors and things like that. I love that kind of stuff. Well, I, think- I love it. And I love digging deep and grappling into those hard things well, exactly. too. Exactly. And, and, you know, speaking like digging deep and grappling with those things, I think that's where, you know, a, identity really comes up. And again, I, I really, I really personally believe that it started, you know, this idea of identity that we had to be this one thing and, and stick to it and glorify, glorify it. And, you know, um, kind of idolize and hone one thing we weren't allowed to become a bunch of things we had to be the mother you know or we were the whore or we were the wife or we were the virgin you know and I think that people grasped onto those concepts you know as a way of claiming their sanity and proving their worth in a way and um yeah and that was that was kind of like where where my childhood came up where when I was a little girl you know we weren't cowgirls didn't cry you know and I was raised uh on a ranch after my mother got married and she got married and we moved to a ranch and from there it's like my you know my path was set out for me I I had to be this one thing and I was and and again this is no reflection of my mom personally but just as the you know the time that we were being raised in and you know I had to be the cowgirl and I needed to be good at school and you needed to be seen and not heard because you were a reflection of your parents and you didn't want to shame them, you know? And, and I feel like that this idea that we weren't allowed to express ourselves, um, you know, it really led to this, this inability to, because I think that when you stop allowing yourself to express those feelings, I mean, emotions are energy in motion. And we, when we stop, allowing that energy to move through us and we try to bury it. I feel like it takes over our lives and we end up becoming the very thing that we're trying desperately not to feel and share, you know? Yes. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for like accepting and loving all of the different aspects of yourself. I know you're into a lot of different things. I know I'm into a lot of different things and I think that's okay. And we don't have to label ourselves as just one thing. I think that that's, so so important I I agree with you 100% Um, yeah so So let's talk more I know that you had quite a uh, traumatic childhood Mm -hmm. Um, tell me how how have you worked through that maybe you weren't able to do that as a child but how have you worked through that I'm gonna guess that's maybe why you're so fascinated and interested in this neuroenergetic kinesiology am I right yes absolutely so when I um, when I escaped the streets uh, there was no, nobody called it sex trafficking back then. It was assumed that I was a prostitute. It was assumed 
by the doctors and the medical people that I did try to go see and by my family that I was a drug addict, which is completely, totally ironic to me because I actually didn't do drugs until after right. as a way to cope. And of course. Um, and it was assumed that I, you know, loved sex and that I was power hungry and all these other things. And and everything that was going on under the skin was the exact opposite of what I what I looked like on the outside. You know, on the outside right. I was sixteen and I was you know, voluptuous and I was flirtatious and I was outgoing and I was charming and, you know, I could talk to anybody and make them smile and make them feel heard. But on the inside, I was, I was the opposite. I was devastated. I was in pain. I was scared of sex. I was, you know, I had zero understanding or connection with my own body. So when I did escape the streets, um, one of the first things that I, that I did acknowledge was that I needed to go back to a place where I felt safe. And I'd always felt safe with horses because I'd been raised with them. So I began to do that. I began to work with horses again, but that didn't last very long because I tried to move back home too soon. And the results of that were beyond devastating. And I had some people that because I didn't know how to protect myself, um, I was easily exploitable and people picked up on that. Uh, quite quickly, especially predators. And so I was hurt a few more times after I got off the streets by people who knew about my experience, um, you know, with prostitution. So I'm sorry. Yeah, it was, it was definitely and it was really hard too, because people don't want to believe that family friends and trusted loved ones are the people that have that in in order to exploit you, right? Yes. yeah, unfortunately, that's usually where things start, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, so what happened is I started using drugs as a coping tool, and yeah. and I started to smoke heroin. Um, I didn't needle it personally. That wasn't my thing, but I did smoke it, and the reason I was smoking it is because I was so traumatized that everything was a trigger, even though I didn't understand that that's what was taking place. Um, I didn't understand. I knew that drinking only exasperated my issues, that um, drinking made it harder for me to, you know, stay in control of the trauma. Right. And so, but whereas uh, smoking heroin allowed me to literally sleep. And that was something insomnia had really taken over my life at that point. I was yeah, you just wanted to escape. I just needed to escape and I couldn't get comfortable in my body, not even a little bit. And so smoking heroin, it gave me a really good focus. I was, I didn't have to care about anything else. The only thing I had to care about was when I was going to get that next hit. And, and I want to say that smoking heroin actually takes commitment. And the reason I say that is because when you first start to do this drug, this heroin, and you first start, you get sick because you're using it. So you get sick, you're puking your guts out, you get the dope hangover, the depression afterwards when you start to kind of come back is is horrible. But then if you do it long enough, you actually start to become sick because you're not using, right? So yeah, for me, wow, yeah, yeah. And that's, I know nothing about it. Yeah. So this is good that you're like getting into detail with all of this stuff. Yeah. Most people don't know that. Um, but heroin just, it feels like somebody's, have you ever had someone run their nails down your skin and you know, that soft feeling, like just how it feels. Yeah. 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 That's what smoking heroin is like, except it's like somebody, something's doing that to your veins. Right. Interesting. And it's kind of like, it's like, it's like being snuggled up with your grandma and having someone stroke your back 
that's what it feels like. But you're actually alone on a bathroom floor hugging it. Cause, exactly. Know. Right. And so for me, that's what it was. It was a comfort thing. And um, like I said, I, I got sick when I started using it and then I got sick cause I wasn't using it. And then, you know, less than a year later and, and it was less than a year and I did try to go back to school. I want to stress that I did try to go back to school, but the things I had seen in life compared to what kids my age were grappling with, I was only 16 at the time was, oh my it goodness. was really hard, yeah. right? Because I mean, I've seen some things that nobody, no kid should see. And Oh, absolutely. And I'm watching these kids that I'm going to school with, you know, ice each other out and ostracize each other because so-and-so didn't pump her brakes and, you know, they accidentally hit a pole because she slammed on her brakes. And I'm like, really, that's your biggest issue. Like everyone got out alive. How is this a problem? I hear you. I absolutely hear you. You have way more perspective on life. Yeah. So I was just like, okay, I can't, I can't do the school thing. And then rumors of course started about me. And that was really hard because you're trying to deflect the rumors as well. Oh, I can't even imagine. I'm so sorry. That just must have been awful. It was it was pretty hard. And and again, that's that's more so what drove me to the drugs. And I didn't have, you know, my mom and my dad, like my dad, he was again, he was dealing with his own drug addiction issues. And my mom, you know, again, it, there was all these assumptions about what I had done, not what I had been through. And I didn't want to disappoint anybody. And I didn't want to bother anybody. And so I didn't take the time like I didn't tell them because they just assumed the worst about me and I was like oh okay well yeah I am that like you're right it was my choice to go do this and I did make these decisions and yeah okay I must be what you say I am because whatever and you know as a kid that's all you can really do right is so I took ownership of what happened to me and then I right then was like oh okay no these are my choices and I made them and so now I'm gonna have to figure out how to build a life outside of this and so I was watching um this movie, The Horse Whisperer, at my mom's house, and I had been clean for a couple of days, and and I was re- getting starting to get sick because I knew I either needed to break from the drugs or I needed to go get some. And I just remember thinking, I want to be there, not here. I want to be there, not here. And that was that right there was the tipping point. Is recognizing that I that I no longer wanted to be where I was, and that I needed right. to make a change. And so. Um, I actually called up my dad who lived in another town. I said, I need to come see you because I, I knew I needed to detox and get clean. And so I, I got on a bus. Hold on. I have a question yeah. before you went to see your dad, like, did your parents ever, or your mom ever recognize like, okay, this girl needs counseling. Like, was that ever an option no. or were you ever offered any resources like that? No, uh, nothing. Hey, I went to the doctors, uh, actually the man who birthed me. And right when I first got off the streets, you know, we went in, I did all my blood work. They went to check me for, you know, STDs and HIV and all those things. And, um, and the doctor, I did try to talk to the doctor about it. And what he told me was to never speak of it. And I said, well, oh my, yeah, it was harsh. He's, I was like, well, what if I have a boyfriend or what if I, you know, get married? And he looked me right in the eyes and he said, don't ever tell a man what you've done. And that right there just scared the shit out of me that you know a doctor is is shaming oh yeah well and unfortunately like mental health issues are so different and there's such a big bias against trauma and anything related to that and and then again generationally like they weren't comfortable speaking about that even doctors and that's just so wrong and it makes me so sad for you and that's why I'm such an advocate Mm -hmm. 
of just talking about this hard yeah. stuff. I've worked in mental health and psychiatry and it's just, it man, this stuff needs to be dealt with and talked about. Well, and I think that, I think that the, the biggest thing is, is people telling you who you are and not asking what happened to you is one of the big, yes. because I was told you're a whore. You were a prostitute. You were a slut. You were X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I was a virgin before all this shit went down. I got raped by exactly. my boyfriend, drugged and gang raped by his friends. And then I met a I met a gang that capitalized off of that and they groomed me into a prostitute. I didn't even know what consensual sex was until I was 18, yeah. right? <laughs> like exactly oh my goodness okay anyway sorry I totally I I had to interrupt and ask because I'm just such an advocate of like getting help from like professionals but back in the day that that wasn't really a a well-known thing right I'm just shocked that your doctor didn't even get you a counselor or anything like that as well back then so when I did go to the hospital a second time I took myself in and the, the the people I was staying with were family friends and they found out I was at the doctor's and they came and I, I went in to try to tell the doctor because I was going to bed. I was cutting. I was, you know, I was eating copious amounts of yeah. and food. I was depressed. I couldn't get out of bed. I was going to bed at night with a, uh, at night with a knife because I was scared <laughs> that someone was coming to get oh. me. And, and so you were completely traumatized and going through every negative coping mechanism yeah. <laughs> there was that you could think yeah, of so I, because you weren't getting positive help. Yeah, so I, I, well, I go into the doctor's. When I'm supposed to be at a dinner meeting, because I finally got, you know, some separated from the people that were taking care of me. So I went into the doctor's and that person came storming into the doctor's office and they thought they were helping me. Here's the thing. They, it was it was misguided love. And they said, she's an addict. Don't give her anything. Don't believe a word she says. Oh, and no. so the do- they just kicked me out. And that was it. Like that was and they were just like, nope, she's an addict. Nope, she was this. Nope, she's a liar. And so I was denied like all any, any kind of medical help that, that you would think. Right. And, and I was labeled. So that of course built all this shame inside of me. Like, well, this is what they think of me. I'm, I am these things. I have to find a way to make it up to everybody now. So, so um, yeah, I decided to get off of heroin. And of course this is a year later and I go up, I catch a bus up to my dad's place. I don't even tell him what I'm there doing. Honest to goodness. I did not tell him anything. And I locked myself in his girlfriend's basement and I went through about a week of self detox and you know, the, the things that they show you, if you ever wonder what detox is like, there is this phenomenal movie uh, st- uh, called Gaia and it's starring Angelina Jolie and it's about a model that became a heroin addict and watch her go through detox. It's just like that. Um, you know, there's, it feels like, feels like things are coming out of your skin it feels like there is snakes and things crawling and you can't stop the cramping and um so you're pounding at your legs and you can't sleep and you're jittery because your body's adjusting so well and it's a medical it can become a medical emergency I remember working in adult psychiatry and often when I lived in Lethbridge we would get people in that were they were trying whether they were trying to commit suicide or it was an accidental overdose they would get sent to us and half the time we'd have to send them up to ICU because it's it can be a medical emergency if you really overdo it and you're going through a detox when your body is used to getting this chemical that you're no longer getting like your brain doesn't quite know how to respond to that it's just awful yeah well and too I mean there's all the reasons why which we'll get into afterwards with the, with the neuroenergetic kinesiology that I've learned, like there's all these reasons yeah. as to why you're doing drugs and 
So there can be a lot of energy blockages within your body and a lot of built up, um, you know, traumas that can trigger a landslide, you know, in, in your ability to heal. So people's responses can become literally violent to, uh, to detoxing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested to hear more about that. Yeah. So it's, um, so yeah, so I, I detoxed out and I got a job working back with, uh, some people I, I used to adopt, fathers <laughs> like most people eat smarties you know I was just like Aww, you're just looking for someone yeah, yeah so I did I got a I got a I contacted an old family friend and I started working for them and and that was kind of really the beginning of it and so and they did horse training they were horse trainers so I started going up there every day and and this is this is what I like to refer to as moving meditation which is my body was so uncomfortable to be in at that time I didn't like anything about myself I had been doing drugs like I said for about a year at that point Um, I gained a lot of weight when I got back from the streets and that was me trying to hide so I was a binge eater that was one of my coping skills and I gained all this weight in an effort to have people stop looking at me right and psychologically I didn't understand that that was the reason behind it but now of course that I'm older I recognize that that has been a pattern, you know, throughout my whole life, which is I don't want to be seen because I don't want people to really know what's going on with me. I want to be invisible. So I would dress like crap and eat and gain a bunch of weight and just hide. Um, So you have such good insight into that. I think more people need to realize that because that is such a like emotional eating and and really trying to hide that is such a common thing it is. not saying at all that your experience is common but that in and of itself like I'm so glad that you now have the hindsight and the the insight to see that's that's what was happening oh, 100% it really helps it helps you to change the behaviors once you're able to recognize them right Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I did that. I started working with horses and um, it helped me, like I said, I call it a moving meditation, which is I had no choice but to be present because I was working with animals and I didn't have to worry about what the animal thought of me. I had to worry about, you know, um, kind of keeping myself safe and trying to keep them safe. And I was working in a training facility, which means I encountered a lot of traumatized animals or animals I had been taught you know, very bad habits that were dangerous for everybody. Um, I bet that was super therapeutic. It for was you. really therapeutic. It was also very hard. So some of the things that made me a great horse trainer, and again, this is what I did is I buried myself. I became, I was very hypervigilant. I had insomnia. I was a binge eater. Um, I had all these things going on and I had an unusually high pain tolerance which these are all side effects of trauma, right? And I didn't know that at the time. So, and and I also was not able, I had no moder, I had no idea what moderation was. And I was seeking out anything that made me feel something again, because I was so numb. It was utterly bizarre that I was numb and yet was hypervigilant and could feel so many things at the same time. So the horse working with horses allowed me to put my hypervigilance to work and it, and it did something for me. So I became an incredibly talented horse trainer as a result of that. And then my high pain tolerance, you get hurt a lot when you're training horses because, you know, until you get better, they're unpredictable until you learn to predict this or see, read the signs. 
And, right. and so yeah. my high pain tolerance was, was also utterly bizarre that I didn't understand why I had such a high pain tolerance. And now I understand that I had so many stress hormones running through my body. I was stuck wow. in, I was stuck in deep survival mode. So everything in my, all of my brain, my brain was actually traumatized and I know. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I know that certain traumas can actually break the synapse flow, uh, between, the, the conversing different parts of your brain, right? And so because there was the break there, um, I didn't respond in a normal fashion and I sought out danger as a way to feel things. So I engaged mm-hmm. in a lot of bizarre, what would be considered bizarre behaviors. <laughs> you know, I went for the danger zone, but it also, this, the amount of hormones that, was, that were flooding my body burnt out um, my ability to feel things. And I just, and I lost, I lost sense of my body in a lot of ways, which mean I just, I couldn't feel pain. And, and yet I, so you mean physically feel things. You don't even just mean, apathy. yeah, no, I mean, I, you mean, you mean physically, I mean, physically had burnt out nerve wow. endings. And so I couldn't feel certain parts of my body. So if I got kicked by a horse, I bounced right back into it. I felt it, but it was like a numb, dull throbbing. It wasn't an acute go to the hospital and, that is so interesting. Yeah, it's it's truly it's the body is just absolutely phenomenal what it does to protect you. And oh yeah. Yeah, so that was just one of the things is um as I lost feeling certain feelings in my body, uh I sought out, you know, I partook in behaviors that would be considered dangerous. Um and I also lacked the ability to moderate. So I was either all work or all play. I didn't know how to combine the two worlds. So I would work for say you know, six months where I was working 18, 18 hours a day easily. And then all of a sudden I would just break and I'd be like, I need to get out of here. And I would go, I'd take off for like a week and I would go and just get drunk and party and do crazy insane things. Like I got drunk in Mexico once and woke up in fucking Europe. And I was like, wow. Huh? How do I get home from here? (laughs) Wow. And they're, they're kind of attributing that to the trauma. Yes. Yes. That is so interesting. That's just so fascinating. Yeah. So there was definitely like a lot going on. So the horse training, um, it saved my life and it it made me a better, like all of everything that I'd been through made me a better horse trainer because I was actually able to empathize with the horses. And this is what no one knew. Cause again, nobody knew about my past. These were conversations that were not being had. This was something I carried in my heart alone. And of course, and when I worked yeah. with horses, I understood what it was to be bought and sold and to not know what was going to come next for you. And, but I was also really struggling with the patriarchy that, you know, the rooted, deep rooted patriarchy within horse training, which is that fear and force is what trains an animal. And, you know, 20 years ago, yeah, that was the belief system. Right. And so I was engaging in these things that, that hurt my soul and that would make me cry when nobody was looking, but I did it because I was also, again, searching for that self-value and I wanted to be loved and I wanted to be thought well of, and I wanted, you know, my papa to be proud of me. I wanted the horse trainers, all these adopted dads I had to see this value and worth in me because I couldn't see it for myself. Right. So I compromised a lot of my own integrity um, at that time, just seeking to please other people in my life. So, uh, but yeah, the. So, do you still see yourself as a people pleaser? Definitely not. Um, <laughs> okay. 
that that has shifted a lot and it wasn't an easy shift for me it the boundary, oh no you know, people pleasing comes to an end I think when you learn to establish boundaries and the boundaries are for yourself you know yes. it, the boundaries are not for I love that I love that you say that because I truly do feel like um people pleasing is a bit of a trauma response I really do feel that and I know some people maybe don't agree some people think that it's like a personality type you're one of four and one of them is you're this obliger you're this people pleaser and they don't feel that you can change so I I love that you say that you've kind of moved past that well exactly like recognizing I had this really just oh this bomb drop on my head about two years ago maybe it was a year ago and and I was working my horses out of a different facility and I, and I was getting ready to kind of leave horse training for other people and just move into it for myself. And I was around these people and their energy, I just felt like I was going insane and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I knew, I knew that there were certain aspects of myself that I wasn't dealing with. I knew that I was actively avoiding dealing with things because I was like, you know what? I don't feel like doing this right now. And so I was putting all my energy into other people's problems and and again, I think even when you recognize that you're doing something, that doesn't mean you're going to stop right away. P.S. Oh, right? totally. I was, like, yep. I was like, well, at least I know what I'm doing. And yeah, I recognize that these people that I was engaging with, that they were, and I'm not saying this to be ignorant or to be cruel or because I think I'm better than, but they're, they were very much lost in their trauma. Like I was say when I was 16, right. And I, and I, so yes. I was able to recognize a lot of that their actions were the result of their own internal chaos. I, I did recognize Yes. That, but there were certain aspects of them that I was just really blown away by. And all of a sudden I realized these people are in my life because they, they're showing me the parts of myself that I actually need to fix right now. That these, these small little quirks that are blocking my ability to release, forgive, and move forward. And, and I yes. saw that. And then I thought to myself, but there's all these really good things about them that I like too. And, but you know, it's these little things that are hurting, like that are destroying the relationship I have with them. And I was like, well, yeah, the good things that you recognize them are also things that you recognize about yourself and the bad things there, they're showing you where you need to just do some final cleanup on. And it was like the minute that I recognized, and there was about four of these people, I recognized these behaviors that they were, I saw them so blatantly, loudly, in my glaringly in my face because they were parts of myself that I didn't like. And I was like, okay, I'm going to work on those things next. And the minute that I made that decision, I'm not even kidding. When I say, when I acknowledged this out loud, that was on a Sunday night, Monday morning, I jumped on a table to clear up some of the stuff through the kinesiology. And by Tuesday, I actually um, moved my horses from that barn. And I know, and I literally just packed up. It was like, it was done. It was done just like that. And all of a sudden these people were no longer in my life. And I just didn't look back. It was so beautiful and sad at the same time. But I think that that's one of the things that when we acknowledge that there are these, you know, hidden attitudes or beliefs or behavior patterns that we're engaging in. And one of them, this was the self-value boundary thing for me, which is I recognized that I was doing something for somebody and that they weren't acknowledging it and that they weren't seeing it or they weren't being appreciative of it. And so I would make an even bigger gesture. And then I was like, 
oh, they're still not acknowledging it or seeing it or, or valuing this thing. And so I make a bigger gesture. And I realized that that was that cyclical cycle of, yes. of um, you know, feeding this behavior pattern of mine, this lack of self-value. And I was like, oh, I'm feeding this. Like, like I'm engaging with somebody who is never going to see what I'm giving them because they're caught up in their own trauma. And, and I'm trying to get them to see my self-value, but they don't see their own self-value, which is why they can't see mine. Yes. And I'm exactly. them everything that I have, trying to prove to them that I care about them and, and that everything's you know going to be okay, but they can't give that to me and I can't give that to them because we have to give it to ourselves. And so when I recognized that that was, that that was the pattern that I had shifted from my mom onto this person or from my papa onto this person, I was like, oh, okay now I see what's taking place here. And that was the beginning of me having to set a boundary and going, I need to show up for myself. I'm constantly showing up for other people. And by doing so, I'm actually losing my own respect by showing up for other people, not showing up for myself or not showing up for them when I say that I'm going to, because I don't have the, you know, um, the energy to do so because I'm so exhausted from feeding bad habits that I had lost faith in myself. I didn't believe anything that I said. I had lost all my integrity. And I was like, well, how can I create a better life for myself if I don't believe in me? And I don't believe in me because I don't have the energy to because I'm so busy giving away all of these wonderful qualities. I'm, you know, I'm giving from an empty cup and I need to be giving from the saucer of the overflow of my life. So yes. That was, yes. Right. Like that was the start of me going, oh, I need to change things even more. It's not just that you can't just clear, you can't just clear trauma away. You actually, no. once you clear that trauma, you still have to step in and rebuild that foundation back. Right. And I think that's yes. one of the biggest misconceptions is like, oh, well, once I clear this issue, it won't be an issue anymore. Well, no, the issue was the issue because you had unhealthy coping techniques. But now that you've cleared, in the first place. Yeah, and, and yeah. you understand what created that pattern and that's and you've cleared it. Now you need to rebuild and build those healthy habits, right? Yes. Yeah. So that was that was the start of boundary setting for me was being able to Good for that. you. Yeah. You deserve a huge pat oh, on the back for that. <laughs> so you walked away. It was sad, but it was great mm-hmm. and beautiful. Yeah. Where did this neuroenergetics kind of like where did you go after oh. that? I'm, I'm so interested to yeah. hear. You're such a great storyteller. Oh, thank you. So, so actually the neuroenergetic kinesiology, this is one of my favorite stories to tell because it's, it's one of the most recent ones. So after my partner committed suicide, I lost my shit and I sold everything. This is a trauma response, which was I'm a runner. I was like, I was like that, that little lizard, you know, that lizard that runs like stands up on his hind feet and then he like runs across the desert and like <laughs> runs across water. I was like, love it love it so I did I I legit um about a year a little bit about a year later after he died I just couldn't stand myself any longer and I had I had a few other things that kept coming up for me and, and I'm a big believer in universal signs divine energy spirit um and and it's like the universe had been sending me signs and I was so committed to like ignoring them that, that it had to drop a few houses on me. And so I got myself tangled up in a few things because universe was like, did you get a message yet? Did you get them? Like, you need to address these issues. And I was like, I was like, la, 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 la. Nope. <laughs> so some things happened within my business and I encountered some really nasty people. And, and it was good. It was really good because it caused me to pivot. 
and I was like, I can't deal with the shit. I'm leaving. And so I sold all my stuff. I bought a plane ticket and I went to Thailand because I was training in the Muay Thai kickboxing. My partner had been that committed suicide. He had also been a horse trainer and we'd had these big plans. And, and when that fell through horses became just this place that caused me too much pain to be near. And they'd always been my saving grace before. So because horses saved me from, you know, the sex trafficking aspect or, and all the trauma there, then when he killed himself in the barn, it turned my safe place into this inferno. Right. And I couldn't horses. And so I was like, well, where am I going to go? So I started Muay Thai kickboxing as a way to give myself something physical to lean into. And just, um, and so I could be present. With my- That's a positive coping mechanism. It was, yes. And Kudos well, to you. Yeah. I just shifted horses. I shifted my obsessive behavior from horses into kickboxing. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, it's got to be something. It wasn't booze and it wasn't sex. So it was all good. Mm-hmm. So I, I go to Thailand and I start training there and, and I'm there for about five months, I think it was. And right at the end, the universe again was like, Hey, Ran, it's time to go home. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I could live here forever. Like I'm in the present moment. There's no past. There's no future. There's only everything that's right here in front of me now. And what's in front of me now is physical exhaustion. And I am comfortable with that. You're like, I'm good. I'm so good. good. It could be, it could be so much worse. I'm happy. And so I ended up getting um, an infection. I had a, I had an ingrown hair in my leg and I didn't think much of it. And it turned into an abscess because I picked at it like a crazy person. And I picked at it and it turned into a little bit of an abscess. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But I had a fight. And so I went into my fight and I threw my first like roundhouse and I swear there's actually a picture of this, of it happening. And when I threw my first roundhouse, I caught the person's elbow right on the abscess that was under the Oh yeah. And, and of course I don't, I don't, I don't think anything of it. I just went, that was the worst pain I'm going to feel in this whole match game on bitch. Right. And I was like, but what had happened is, is the abscess had burst into my leg and so I had what is <gasps> I didn't know this for a day or two what is commonly referred to as I believe blood poison sepsis yes, uh, oh oh blood my poisoning. see that's my yeah see this is my is this uh, your field my, my nursing my nursing background yeah. is is kicking in now yes like okay, okay you got some blood poisoning and some sepsis that's gonna start happening yeah, soon so, Ooh, that's bad so that night was it that night I was like it was really weird my leg looked awful and then by the next day, I had the full-on, like, nauseous, fevers, chills, super, super sick. And I had to get on a plane to go back home because I ran into a paramedic who was like, um, yeah, so that's traveling. <laughs> you need to go home. So I get on a plane, and it was so bad up in the air. I don't know if you know this kind of pain, but I have never been in so much pain, I swear. Probably not because you probably have a higher pain tolerance as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So that on top of yes. – this is this is this is going to be major. I don't recommend <laughs> flying with a leg. No, I couldn't see my knee anymore. So the the rash was spreading. It looked like a rash. It was spreading like up past my knee at this point. Because oh yeah. yeah, and so so I get to Japan. I was supposed to spend a few days in Japan, and I get to Japan and I'm hallucinating at this point. And I'm like, and I'm traveling by myself. So I'm like, yeah, I should probably carry on. So anyways, so I end up getting back on a plane. I get home. I finally get to a doctor's. The nurses won't even deal with me. They're just like, yeah, 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 whatever. And so we drew a line on my leg to show them how fast this thing was traveling. 
And I finally, after like six hours waiting in the hospital on a bed and no one looking at me, I got up and I had a meltdown, like of epic proportions. And so doctor comes over and he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, do you see how fast this is traveling? And he's like, "Uh uh-oh. So right away, they like, they run me into this room and they numb the leg and they get in there and they're scraping out everything that they can. And he looks at me and he's like, yeah, so about a day and a half more of this and you'd be dead. Just Yes. So anyways, so I was like, huh, that's funny. Anyways, it didn't even like, didn't even phase me. I was like, yeah, whatever. So. Oh, that's huge. So I had, and this is, again, this is something that was so interesting. I didn't know at the time, but so he started me on about two weeks of antibiotics. And by this time I'm like, I'm also supposed to be writing my book. So I'm, I was supposed to be working on my book about my experience being sex trafficked. I'm reeling from the death of my partner, my horse business is completely trashed. I have like, I've let everything go. My, my entire, all my financials, everything is just gone. Like I've, I've wiped myself out and now I'm on two weeks of antibiotics. Okay. And so I, which nobody which likes, nobody likes, but it, this plays a really important role in what happens next. And it took me a few years to find this out. So I get back to Alberta and I'm trying like, and I can't walk. So all of a sudden I can't use my physical prowess to escape my all my sadness and my grief right so I'm like bedridden I can't move I can't jog I can't do anything and my microbiome has been wiped out by two weeks of course because of the antibiotics and for people who don't know what microbiome is that's your gut health and your your gut health yeah as is so for I totally did an episode on gut health like a couple of weeks ago so so funny okay will will know that as long as they're caught up, they totally should know. So why yeah. don't you tell them if your microbiome is wiped out, what what happens? Uh, you're gonna go crazy. It affects every aspect of your body. It affects your mood. It affects your mental health. It affects your physical health. It. I'm interested to hear how it affects you, but that's kind of where, <laughs> when your microbiome is messed up, you are so imbalanced that you're going to you're going to get sick. That's where everything needs to start is in your gut. So my microbiome was completely wiped out and I started and I free fell because I couldn't physically move because of my leg had a big hole in it. Right. I couldn't walk. They had actually like stripped along, um, along my leg. They, they had cut a bunch of the muscle was missing. And so I, my, my leg looked like it was wasting away. So I couldn't walk. I couldn't physically exercise. I had no microbiome and I'm trying to write a book about my experience sex being sex trafficked. Oh, you'd have so much brain <laughs> fog and stuff. Good luck. Well, what happened is, is um, when you're writing a story like that, so the way that my book, my book began to write itself through me and the book writes is written from the viewpoint of the 16 year old girl that this is happening to. Right. So yes. what happens though, is when my amygdala kicks in, my trauma kicks in, I all of a sudden I'm living in the past and I can't, I don't have the tools to get out. So I'm actually stuck where I can't get into my, I can't get back into my body. Physically, I can't actually move and walk around. My mental health is completely like downhill because my microbiome and my gut health has been wiped out. Right. So I can't get heads or tails of anything that's going on, but I also have to pay some of my bills and I don't have anybody in my life, like I'm staying with a friend, but they have no idea what's going on with me. And so I'm just free falling in depression. And like, we're talking, this is bad. Like, like definitely was fantasizing about suicide. I, I don't believe I would have ever taken that route because I haven't yet, but 
But you were at the bottom. I was at at the bottom of the bottom. And, you know, my business is trash. So now I have to get another job. So I, but I'm also terrified of people. So like all of my triggers, anything loud sounds, like if somebody slipped. Everything was just heightened. If someone slammed a door by accident, it would actually send me under the covers for like three days. And I couldn't control it because I, I couldn't get my, my central nervous system back online. So I couldn't control my own reactions and I couldn't. I couldn't be present because my brain, I was lost in the past as well. So I start milking cows. So I'm, at least I'm back around animals. So this is only on a night job. I'm only doing this on the weekends, you know, but I can work a 12 hour shift um, without having to see anybody because I'm the night shift person. And all I wanted, all I could think about was getting back to Thailand where everything had been okay. Right. And I was like, well, how am I going to, how could I make it in Thailand? How could I, how could I facilitate like a, like a long-term year long stay there? And when I would have been riding horses, um, my, again, one of the men that I had adopted, uh, I called him Uncle Ralph. And he had um, a particular set of skills that I didn't, I didn't even know what it was called. I just knew it was something along the lines of osteopath. And when I got on the table, he was able to help put my organs back into place and rotate my hips back into place. It was so, it was so helpful. It's what kept me stitched together when I was a horse trainer. And mm-hmm. um, so I was like, well, I could do that for the fighters, right? I was like, I was like, I could take these courses and do what my uncle Ralph does. And I could go stay in Thailand for a year and, you know, like help the fighters and then make some extra cash to pay for my own training while I'm there. So I called up my uncle Ralph and I said, you know, what, how do I get started? How can you teach me what this is? And so he calls me back and he says, well, you need to get your touch for health. There's four levels. You have to get touch for health before I can start working with you on the body stuff. And I said, okay, cool. And then, of course, he said, he said, like, he had to get, he had to be able to teach. He said, so you get your touch for health and I'll see about getting certified to be able to teach what it is that I'm, you know, what it is that I learned. And I was like, okay, cool. So I, I show up at this person's place and she's teaching this touch for health course. And I'm there on the first day and she starts, she's like, so what, why did everybody here want to come do touch for health? And I also had this thing where psychologically, I never like to tell people what I'm up to. I never like to tell people what's really going on because I don't ever want it to be used against me because of my trauma. So I always Mm -hmm. tell people like the opposite of what I'm doing or not now, but I did then. So I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to use this for the horse training, blah, blah, blah. And then somehow or another, my sex trafficking stuff came up and I couldn't control my emotions. And all of a sudden I start to shake and then I start to like, like vibrate. And then the tears start falling because I was just like, I can't hold it back. And so my teacher, she walks up to me and she says, um, she goes, may I, do I have your permission to touch you? And I said, oh yeah, please help, like help. I'm stuck. I can't move. And she put her hand on my forehead and she, then she put her other hand on the back of my head and she held that there. And what she was doing is she was activating ESR, which is acupressure Mm -hmm. points for emotional stress relief. Mm -hmm. And what that did is it allowed my brain to re-engage with itself. So my amygdala had kicked in and my locus cerebral, my frontal lobe, which is your problem solver, hormones had been sent out to suppress my locus cerebral, my problem thinking part of the brain from helping me process what was happening. And it had also sent out um, hormones that suppressed my my memories, my bank of memories, my long-term memories. So I was stuck. And when she held those acupressure points, for whatever reason, all of a sudden I stopped crying, right? And I was either able to gather myself up again. And then she told me about this thing called brain integration. And she goes, and I was like, that kind of sounds like something I might need. 
You're like, yeah, I need this in my life. Thank you. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that sounds like a good idea because I can't not cry when you ask me a simple question. And that's utterly bizarre because I've never cried about my past in my whole life. Nobody in my life, not my papa, not my mom, not my sisters, none of them knew what had happened to me. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm sitting at a table and I can't like, I can't even control my tears. Right. So I'm like, holy shit. So I took my touch for health courses, um, the four levels of it. And then she, she told me, my teacher said, you know, this is, this is what brain integration is. And she introduced me to LEAP, which is, um, stands for Learning Enhancement Acupressure Program, which was started by a man named Charles Krebs. Um, and then he had gotten a lot of his information because he worked with Richard Utt and Hugo Tobar and a bunch of other just, and Jackie Mooney, a bunch of these amazing people that are all in the same field. And so what, what LEAP did is it worked with, western science and an eastern you know spirituality with the acupressure points and the mudras um which is like uh so i think it's indian tibetan hand signals that people use for meditation okay i was wondering what mudra was Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a it's just a specific way that you hold your fingers to certain to certain different areas of other fingers so like if you held your pinky to your thumb or if you held your thumb to the corner nail bed or the first knuckle or the third knuckle or um, every finger stands for something different within the, this energy um, and the way they hold it. And then they, and then they used acupressure. So Chinese acupressure. And so they, what they did is they combined all of this, that the Chinese acupressure with the Tibetan or the India, the mudras, and then they used a bunch of Western science. So they started mapping different parts of the brain and the body and how everything interacted. And they came up with this, it's, it's a stress tool. It's a tool for extreme stress and it helps to lift the stress off of the body. So I went in and of course I didn't know anything about this, by the way, I still struggle trying to explain it because it's just so complex. Um, And I went in for my first session to try the brain integration. And I remember being on the table and I'm, Having And I can't feel, and this is something that is so important, I think, for anyone who's ever experienced trauma. My biggest fear was that I was a narcissist because I lacked, I felt like I lacked empathy. I felt like I lacked compassion because I didn't recognize at the time, I didn't lack any of those things. I had them in spades, but I was unable to feel them for myself a lot in partial due to the fact that I had so much trauma that I'd been suppressing my, th- my emotions. Um, but also because that is I, such an important and interesting point that you brought up. Yeah, totally. Right? So I, I get on the table and, and I turn and I'm just in tears and I look at her and I'm like, I'm afraid that I'm a narcissist because I'm afraid that like, it's, it feels like all I ever do is think about myself and it feels like I don't have compassion for, you know, my one friend, he committed suicide. And before he did, he used to call me up and he'd be like, you know, X, Y, and Z. And instead of me sitting there sympathizing with him or, you know, saying, well, that's, that's really harsh and, you know, tell me more. I was like, you need to get your shit together. You need to get on the table. You need to start working on this. You need to cut X, Y, and Z out of your life. You need to take actionable steps towards fixing this instead of calling me with the same problem for five years in a row. Like you need to fix this. And so I was afraid because I would get frustrated with people like that. And I'd be like, no, you need to take actionable steps to fix this that I was a narcissist in some way. And then it turns out it was the opposite. 
Um, and that's what yeah. she said. I got on the table and she's like, no, she's like, you're not a narcissist. She's like, you feel so deeply, but you know, you're just, you, you need some help right now. And I was like, okay. So I get on the table and we did a bunch of things. I believe, uh, we did my celestial circuit, which helped to bring me um, back into my body. Cause I was, I was disassociated from my body at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, did act, we did SIPS, which is stress indicator point system. So that is a series of acupressure points that helps to lift blockages um, that are over your organs. So like a buildup um, of emotions. Like So every part of our brain is attached to an organ, right? And if we have an excess of emotions, it stands to reason that that would create a blockage over of energy, your chi, right around that organ and so those organs they when they have a blockage like that they can't operate properly so what they do is they borrow from the other areas of energy right but Mm -hmm. those other areas of energy I mean those aren't infinite like they're they it's not going to go on forever eventually you deplete them exactly which is what creates a lot of psychosomatic conditions is my understanding is that Mm -hmm. you know we have all this imbalance of energy our organs stop working and then that goes directly linked back up to our brain through the pons I think um and so all of a sudden we start having all of these issues that I I believe you know have, have been linked back to like fibromyalgia and whatnot so um she held acupressure points there and I could feel it moving it felt like this cool gray silk just flushing all wow. from the top of my head to the tips of my toes and back again. And, and it was a long session. I think I was on the table for about two hours. And when I left, I didn't feel immediate release, but um, the, like in our brain, we have these things called glial cells and it's, that's what helps our brain to heal, right? To heal trauma and whatnot. And we also have this thing called glymphatics, which is like the lymphatic system, but with the glial cells for the brain, it helps to flush out the toxins mm-hmm. and all the things. And so that can take about 30 days, right? For you to really see or feel the difference. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Your brain is healing itself. And so mm-hmm. I recognized about 30 days later, I was actually functioning better and I was able to engage more with myself and I was kind of back in my body and that was the first, my first interaction with um, bioenergetics in different parts of the world. It's referred to as different things. So in okay. in Canada, we now call it bioenergetics. Uh, in Australia, okay. it, it falls under the umbrella of specialized kinesiology or neuro um, or neuroenergetic kinesiology or neurocardiokinesiology. There's different names for it just about everywhere. Okay. Um, oh, that's good to know. Yeah, right. So obviously it worked for you. Like you, like, did you keep going back or did you just do the one session? Oh, no, no. I, I not only did I actually go back for more sessions, um, I also then, so through muscle testing, which is a part of the touch Mm -hmm. for health through muscle testing, uh, I found out that I needed a bunch of things, which again, looking back now, I'm like, oh, of course my microbiome. Cause all of a sudden I had, I had to go get all these vitamins and you know, like spirulina and chlorella and um, yes. different vitamins. And I, again, I didn't know, but yes, we were starting to rebalance um, yes. my microbiome and my gut health. And so that took place. Uh, I was still going to get sessions. And then I was like, I need to take these courses. And so I enrolled because I had all four of my touch for health courses at that point. Um, I was like, well, I want to do brain integration. So I had to put my hopes and dreams of going back to Thailand on hold 
or because I decided to take a couple courses instead. So the first course I took, I believe, um, I think it was my sixth course, Stress Indicator Point System. Jackie Mooney taught that. She came from Australia and uh, did a workshop. And then from there, I took my sim- Simply the Brain course that Jackie created. That was an introduction to the brain for me. I took my LEAP, which is LEAP 1, which deals with the amygdala, learning enhancement acupressure program. So I started so cool. taking all these incredible courses. And of course, I was getting balances, you know, because you're learning on one another. And then I was able to balance myself. Yes. So I started, that's what I started doing is I started taking all these really intense, beautiful courses. I took a course called Attitude with Essence that helps you to uncover hidden attitudes. So attitudes create your thoughts, your thoughts create your feelings, your feelings therefore create your reality. So if you have hidden attitudes, which of course, generational trauma, raise your hand, of course, Mm -hmm. I had all these hidden attitudes passed down from my parents. I had all these thoughts and feelings about myself that weren't even mine. You know, like yep. I, I didn't think horrible things about myself or I wouldn't have, but someone else told me that these horrible things about me. And so I was like, oh, well, that must be true. Right? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that's when I really started to dive into psychology and the, the human brain. And I learned like the, that the female brain is so different than the male brain and, yeah. And, and during all this time I was writing my book. So all these things were coming up for me that I was so like, you were having to keep getting treated. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't, I couldn't stop because if I stopped, I wouldn't have been able to write my book. So. Yes. So you're still currently a student of all this, correct? I will never stop being a student to be honest awesome. with you. I love hearing that. Yeah. So I take courses every year. Um, whatever workshops that I can manage to save up enough money for is what I will take. So this year, I took a hormone hologram course to work and balance all the hormones. And I think it was about right after Tom died, I started getting, I started having this localized pressure right over my third eye. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I was crazy. And it had been there forever. My, my nose was always getting plugged up. I had so many problems. I had brain fog, even though I was, you know, eating right, even though I was doing everything the naturopathic way that I could. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I balanced my own hormones. I went into my adrenal system and I went through the, the adrenal balance and I kid you not the, the headache, this localized pressure that had been in my forehead for about three years. I thought maybe I had a brain tumor, to be honest with you. And it dissipated like immediately. It was wild. And so I researched it and it was my overload of adrenal, like my adrenal system Mm -hmm. had actually caused an overload of histamines. Which had, from stress, yep. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Which had localized um, there and had created all the problem right there at the at the base of my skull, or sorry, at the on my forehead. So yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So do you currently practice this on your clients or anything like that yet? Are you yeah. at that point? Yeah. So I'm I'm a practicing student. Um, wow. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. You know, um, right now I'm actually so lucky. One of my girlfriends, she's up in um, Lillooet and I, she introduced me to a bunch of people up there because she was getting sessions from me. And so she said, and I said, listen, I'd love to do this thing where it's just a pay what you can, because even I can't afford to go and see people on a regular basis because, you know, it's not covered under medical. This is, you know, it's, it's energy work, right? Yes. And yeah. so um, I said, but the people that need it the most are the people that can't afford it. Like myself, you know, cause I, I was going to school and I was dealing with all of my own trauma. I had, you know, 
cut down. I couldn't work um, because of my book. And so even I, you know, I know what it's like to really, truly struggle and like be in debt and yes. be going downhill. And I said, yeah. I want to do a pay what you can situation where, you know, just pay what you can. I don't even care. Just come get on the table and see if this is for you. See if this helps you. And Good so for we, you. Yeah. So we started doing that up in Lillooet. And um, so I go up to Lillooet about a week and I got to work or I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of the, um, the indigenous uh, family members that, that live up there. And the, the differences that I've, that people are reporting back to me, just, it's just, I don't know. It's like the best feeling in the world to know that, you know, they're showing up for themselves and that they're making choices. And, um, you know, I know lots of people will be like, Oh, you're a healer. And, and I really, I can't, I disagree with that. Um, I'm not a healer by any means. I think that when you make decisions to improve your life, when you, when you commit to that, you open up the floodgate for spirit or energy or the universe to send you the people that you need to help make that happen. And so whenever you get on, that was beautiful. I just have to say that was like, that's why I'm doing this current series on this podcast. First, we did a looking inward series where you look in and you become self-aware and you figure out what your demons are and you work towards fixing them. And then now we're looking outward as to how we can take all of the things that we've learned about ourselves in order to share our story and help other people. And that's so beautiful. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you did this pay as you can scenario because you're right like it's more about helping people than it is about monetizing anything exactly and and I feel like the universe rewards me so much for you know for being able to commit to that I I feel like when I was charging like a set amount for it um I feel like everything it just it didn't feel right to me I felt really uncomfortable with it that I felt like people that sometimes that there could be resentment from people you know I felt like there's this thing where it's like they'll pay for something because I was trying to get people deals, trying to get them to come back more often. Um, and not more often, but enough to help them make, you know, the advancements or the changes that they were looking to make. And I felt like when they stopped showing up, then there was sometimes there was a shift and a blame and a resentment that would be put on to me. And that was another thing about my boundaries is I had to recognize like, hey, if, yeah. if you don't show up, for your energy session and then I call you out on it and then you're mad at me and suddenly I'm the asshole I was like that's not on me that's on you and so yeah that was another thing that helped me with the pay what you can thing where that really took that that expectation and that weight off my shoulders where I was just be like I didn't feel like I owed them so much for showing up I was like no no this is your responsibility and if you're not if you choose to pay me and then not show up that's not my problem. That's yours. And I find that, you know, when it's a pay as you go, people are so, they have so much more gratitude, not for you, but for the ability to show up for themselves. Because when they have to spend money that they don't have on something, and then they have all that added stress in their life that prevents them from feeling like they can make it, then they're mad at you. Right. Whereas yes. when all of a sudden it doesn't matter how much it costs, all they have to do is show up. It takes all that stress off and then they're able to show up and be there for themselves. And I love that, you know, these changes or these feelings or these emotions or, you know, and 
yeah, people come and they get on the table and it's so incredibly beautiful. Um, what, what takes, I wish I could come and see you. I I feel like you're nowhere close to me though. I, you know what? I know know people in Calgary who do what I do. So I would gladly give you some references. I love that. I love that so much. Well, tell us how we can support you and how we can find you. I do know you said you're going to be doing your own podcast as well called focus forward, which I love so much. What a fantastic name. Thank you. Yeah. So, so tell me more about that and your IGTV. Oh my goodness. Yes. So well, Focus Forward is a new podcast. Um, it is designed, I just, it, life is just so much more fun when you have mentors. And I feel yes. as though um, there are so many things out there that women and men, little girls and little boys who have experienced sexual abuse or exploitation, whether or not you know um, you were raped or maybe whether or not you were forced into child marriage, maybe you were a prostitute or maybe you know, you had a heavy handed parent or a handsy uncle. Um, There's so many things that can help you to improve your life. And I'm a big believer in activating change. And I think that you need actionable steps. So Focus Forward podcast is a combination of doctors and, uh, you know, the kinesiologists that I work with, as well as just real people like myself telling you our stories and then giving, telling, sharing with you the things that the steps that we took to empower ourselves, right? Because like maybe, maybe something will click for you and maybe it won't, you know, but there, so that's what focus forward is about. That's going to drop. Uh, I'm hoping to have it out by September the 15th. I'm pre-recording six months of episodes right now. So I'm already pre-recording awesome. the websites. Uh, the website's actually being built as we speak. The website is going to be www.rankirving.com. And from rankirving.com, you'll find the Focus Forward podcast, and then you'll find the IGTV series that I'm doing with my friend, Amanda Mydent. She lives down in Guatemala, and it's called Read the Fine Print. So with Read the Fine Print, we are really going to delve into these power statements that get tossed around, you know, social media, and we are going to just tear into them and be like, this is what it really looks like, you know, like, so we're going to talk about toxic friendships. We're going to talk about seeking versus searching. We're going to talk about divine timing. We're going to talk about, you know, being able to find the blessing. What is a present moment, you know, loving people from a distance. And we're just going to, we're going to get into how that feels and what that looks like from different perspectives and not just this, you know, blanket statement that can sometimes I think discourage people from taking that step because it's like, we say this, but like, where do I start? You know? So, Absolutely. Yeah, so we're going to take about 30 minutes every Monday morning and we're going to talk about these things. It's going to be on uh, IGTV live. Uh, Love yes. it. I'm going to add your website that you're currently oh, working on you. that people can find you soon yes. to the show notes for today. We are going to keep in touch. You're going to tell me all the amazing people who do this kind of neuroenergetic kinesiology work in Calgary. Yes. I feel like I know a couple. I think I'm going to be doing a women's workshop with somebody who probably does very similar energy oh, work to you, which is fantastic. She's my fave. You have been so much fun to talk oh, to. My last question yes. for you, because this has been such an amazing episode. And of course, my my headphones are dying and I do not want to mess up this recording because it's been just fabulous. Tell me a couple of your mentors that you look up to. A couple of my mentors. Where do I begin? So um, I would definitely say if you're into horses, Buck Branneman, he's been a phenomenal mentor. 
I mean, there's my papa, um, you know, but you won't be able to find him. He's, you know, he's my papa. He's hidden away in the mountains somewhere. Uh, love it. Who else do I love? You know, Gabby Bernstein, she is a fabulous mentor. Brene Brown, Johan Hari, Mark Hyman, Alberto Villado, uh, Mark Woolen is another one. Um, let me think here. Bruce Lipton, Sean Stevenson, Hugo Tobar, Jackie Mooney. Let's see here. Dr. Paul Tanari. Um, I mean, who else? Ryan Frischinger. Let's see here. Who else is a great person to look up? There's just, ah, there's so many of them. So many. <laughs> there are so, 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 many, so many. many. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I feel like you're my soul sister. Oh. We're just, we're definitely going to keep in touch. I hope so. yeah. And I can't wait to watch some of your, uh, IGTV stuff. I need to look into what that even oh, is. Just- and I can't wait to listen to your podcast. I'm going to be searching it in September. You better believe it. Cause so I am a podcast lover. Yeah. Only reason I started one, I started listening to them. I'm like, why don't I just start right? one? This is fabulous. I gotta tell you, it was- and it's so easy. It's so easy. And it was a podcast that helped me, you know, like Sean Stevenson has a yeah. podcast called the model health show. And because of him, I was introduced to, you know, I was introduced to Dr. Mark Hyman as a result of that. And then Dr. Mark Hyman helped me to, you know, understand about nutrition better kind of idea. And, you know, like, or Kyle Cease, like I found out who Kyle Cease was. And then I ended up buying his book and it, and it helped me to understand how, like, how money affected me and how, you know, because I had bought and sold for money that anytime I got money, I always looked at it as evil and I spent it faster than I could make it. Because I had the conscious attachments to it. So like, there's so many incredible mentors out there. Um, You know what? Absolutely. I'm so glad that you started a podcast to add to that because people need this. They need this information. They need access to this and people need to be, they need to empower themselves and and you can't wait for other people, you know. Absolutely. And you know, everybody has a story to tell and everybody can, can think of a way to look outward and rise up and just be that strength and that light for other people. And I absolutely have loved talking to you. You you have been such an example and you have so much insight into what's happened with you and you have so much self-awareness and I wish I could be one of your clients and could sit on your table once a week. Well, the next time I come up to Alberta and it's going to be soon because I'm going to be coming to see shaman up there. I will give you, shoot you a message and we should get together. Please do. I would absolutely love that, Um, Rayanne. It has been more than a pleasure. You have been a fantastic interview and I know we'll keep in touch. So have a fabulous day. Hopefully it's sunny where you're at. Go enjoy the sunshine. (laughs) I I wish I'm, I'm on the coast. It's, it's a rainforest down here. Oh, it's a rainy day. Well, yesterday we had like the biggest storm. Like there was like an update from our, our mayor, our city mayor, with it there was been so much damage our neighbor got his car uh windshield shattered his back windshield i should say like it was it was awful here so i'm enjoying the sunshine now definitely go enjoy the sunshine thank you so much for having me on and letting me just ramble my face off it was wonderful no you i could i took so many lessons away from our recording and i know so many people will find so much value in it and your future podcast and your future show so i can't wait for those and yeah just have a fabulous day thanks you too all right take care bye teddy bye thanks for listening friends Don't forget to leave us a review, share your favorite podcast episode with others, and spread the love. Have a great day and keep becoming your best self.
Mountain Movers are a high-quality, highly reliable moving company who offer to assist you with all of your relocation needs. Find out more and request a discount by contacting our good friend and owner, Jeff Gilbert. Email him at mountainmovers at mail.org and tell him Teddy sent you. I'm sure he'll give you a discount.